Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, fool of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Persia and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. 
But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. During such uncertain times, it's a good thing to just listen to the Bible be read for that length of time. And Acts 13 is such a wonderful passage to read and to think about. And I want to spend some time unpacking it with you so that we don't miss what it is I think God would teach our church as we think about the reimagined vision from the book of Acts. There are a couple things I think we need to notice here in Acts chapter 13. The first thing I want you to notice is the message. As you listen to Paul speak to the crowd that gathers to hear him at Antioch, I want you to notice the consistency of the gospel message that he preaches. You know, already in our study of the book of Acts, we've heard sermons by Peter at the day of Pentecost. We've heard a sermon by Paul in the city of Athens, speaking to a Greek audience. And now we hear Paul speaking to a Jewish audience in the city of Antioch. And what you'll notice if you look at all the sermons in the book of Acts is how consistent the message is. 
And that message is the message of what God has communicated to us in the Bible through Jesus. I don't know how much time you've spent in the Bible, or even if you've read the Bible. I recognize that some people watching this service over the weekend will be people who are not yet Christians or not sure where they stand with Christianity. And so when you think about the Bible, I don't know what comes to mind, but Paul's message here in Acts 13 is actually a really good summary of the Bible. And that summary goes a little something like this. The Bible is the story of God making and keeping some really amazing promises. Paul gathers a Jewish audience who would have known the Old Testament or the first part of the Bible. And he reminds them from Abraham to David of all the promises that God made to the Jewish people in the Old Testament telling them that he would make them into a nation and that through the family of David, he would provide them a king, a good king, who would rule forever. Now, both of those are crazy promises, promises that would need a lot of things to happen in order to be kept. But they're also promises that God kept throughout the Old Testament. In fact, you can think about the first part of the Bible, the first part of the message of God as God building a resume with us, of showing us that when he tells us he's going to do something, he actually does it. But Paul's point is that all the promises that God had made and kept in the Old Testament, while establishing a reputation for God as being a promise maker and a promise keeper, were really just getting us ready for the promise of Jesus, that the God of the Bible would make the biggest promise of all, which would be that he would do something that would reunite us with him, that would reconcile us in relationship to him. You see, the Bible says that every one of us have sinned against God, broken the law of God, separated ourselves relationally from God. But God in Jesus made a promise that he would take upon himself all the sins and problems and brokenness that exist between us and him, and that he himself would solve it. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus. Paul talks about how Jesus is the one who came and lived in our place and died in our place and rose from the dead in order that we might be forgiven. You see, something really amazing was happening in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the greatest promise being made and being kept by God in all of the Bible. And that is that God promised to take our sins and put them on to Jesus and to take Jesus's righteous and perfect life and put it on to us. So that when we grab hold of Jesus in faith, what is happening is that God is beginning to see Jesus as us and us as Jesus. So that when Jesus dies, it's our sin he's paying for. And when he raises from the dead, all that is left when God looks at us is to see the beauty and righteousness of Jesus. That is the message of the Bible. One big story driving at this. God loves us enough to make really big promises, and he loves us enough in Jesus to keep every one of those promises. 
I don't know if you've spent a lot of time in the Bible, but if you haven't, and if this isn't what you thought the Bible was about, I want to encourage you with a lot of time on your hand during this pandemic to spend some time discovering the God of the Bible in the Bible. And what you're going to find is the reason why, whether it's Peter preaching in Acts 2, Paul preaching in Acts 17, or Paul preaching here in Acts 13, there's always and only one message. A promise-making, promise-keeping God wants to rescue us in Jesus. But there's another thing I want you to notice too. It's not just the message of Acts 13, but it's the audience. In fact, I think this is the big idea of this chapter here in Acts 13. Because if we say that God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God who desires to rescue sinners in Jesus, the most obvious question is, well, who has he made those promises to? How do we know if we're included in the promise-making and promise-keeping of God? How can you know if the God of the Bible cares about you enough to make and keep promises to you? Well, let me give you a little analogy and then apply it to Acts 13. My, my wife recently informed me that with the holidays coming up, we need a bigger kitchen table. We have a big family and we're having family who will visit us over the holidays and apparently our table is not big enough. And so I've been uh, begrudgingly plunged into the world of kitchen table shopping. And here's what I've discovered. When you're shopping for a table to seat your family around over meals, you can't just take one measurement. You don't just need to know how long the table is, for example. You need to know how wide it is because you've got to put a certain amount of food on it. You need to know how high it is off the ground because it has to correspond to the chairs you're sitting on so that you're not sitting too high or too low to use the table. You end up having four or five different measurements to make sure that this is the right table for you. You measure its height and its width and its depth. Well, that's actually what Acts 13 is doing for us when it comes to the promises of God, measuring its height and depth and width. In fact, you can see this in two different ways. The passage begins with two different people uh, hearing the message of Jesus. One is a government official, a pro-council, a very, very important and powerful person. The other is a magician who speaks falsely about God uh, that the disciples encounter. Uh, both of them hear about Jesus. Well, when you read that part of the story, you find yourself going, why, why does it matter? Why do I need to know that this government official and this magician end up hearing about Jesus? What, what difference does that make in the story? Well, the idea here is that whether you are a Jewish magician saying all kinds of awful and wrong things about God, or you are a powerful government official, the promises of God are for you. They're for you to hear. They're for you to believe in. And even at the end of the first story, when the Apostle Paul actually prays that the magician would be struck blind, it's, it's tempting to look at that and go, well, see, God doesn't want that magician to come to know him. God doesn't want to rescue 
that guy. But remember, if you know the story of Paul, that it was actually getting struck with blindness that ends up leading him to faith in Jesus. Paul isn't calling down judgment on the magician. He's hoping that the same mechanism that led him to faith will lead this stubborn magician to faith as well. And the second measurement that Acts 13 gives us is between a Jewish audience and a Gentile audience. And that word Gentile, by the way, just means a non-Jewish person. In this time and in this part of the world, from a Jewish perspective, the Jewish and Gentile divide was the biggest ethnic and religious divide there was. It was even a sharper divide than the ones in our culture that might exist between Republicans and Democrats, or conservatives and liberals, or uh, white people and non-white people, men and women. Now, the Jews and Gentiles were divided because the Jewish people believed themselves to be the people of God, and the Gentiles to be those outside of the people of God, and they treated them that way. But in Acts 13, you'll notice that the gospel is preached to a Jewish audience in synagogues from the Old Testament. But at the end of the chapter, it's the Gentiles who are most excited at Paul reminding them that God's desire has always been that his people would be a light to the nations, all nations, even Gentile nations. Now, all that to say that what Acts 13 is showing us is that the early church understand the message of Jesus, that God loves us enough to make and keep some crazy promises, is for everyone. It's for the Jewish magician saying awful and not true things about God. It's for the government official who's powerful and prestigious and yet still a sinner. It's for the Jew and it's for the Gentile. See, Acts 13 is reminding us that God's promises aren't for a select group of people. They're not for only a certain ethnicity or a certain socioeconomic class. They're for everyone. And that leads me to a third observation, and that is that Acts 13 is really driving a question to us. And that question is, what will you do with the promises of God? You see, the main idea of Acts 13 is that God has desired to rescue sinners through Jesus and that he has promised that everybody who grabs hold of Jesus in faith, everyone who says that their hope is in Jesus living in their place and dying in their place and raising from the dead will be restored to relationship with him. And that includes the Jews and that includes Gentiles and that includes magicians and government officials, and that includes you, if you grab hold of it. You know, it's interesting that the climax, if you will, of this passage comes when the Jewish people hear the message of Jesus, and initially, they're very excited about it. They, they, they are excited about the idea that the Messiah has come, that God has kept his promise, and that they can be forgiven. But when a crowd begins to form in the city, made up not only of Jewish believers in the Old Testament, but also Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who also desire to hear and believe in the message of the Messiah, they're offended. They want Jesus, but they don't want Jesus to want the Gentiles. 
And in that, Acts 13 is helping us to see something. That when we hear the message of Jesus, we're always going to come up against this us and them dynamic. And here's what I mean. All of us tend to see the world as people who are like us and people who are not. Most of us tend to live lives surrounded by people who look like us, who dress like us, who eat the same foods we eat and go to the same places we go and spend their money on the same things that we spend our money on. And that's not necessarily bad, except for what ends up happening is that without even realizing it, we set up an us and them kind of dynamic. People like us, and then those people who are not like us, those people are the them. There's us, and then there's them. That's how the Jewish people were at this time. They liked the idea that God loved us, but they didn't like the idea that God loved them. And you see, Acts 13 is causing us to wrestle with this idea. If God has made really big promises and has kept those promises and desires for the making and keeping of those promises in Jesus to be good news for everyone, then that means people who look like us and people who don't. People who live like us and people who don't. And in that is this simple question. Do you want Jesus even if Jesus wants them? In other words, are you so excited about the promises that God has made and is keeping in Jesus that you are ready and even excited about God rescuing people who don't look like you, who don't dress like you, who don't spend their money in the way that you do? Are you ready for Jesus to cross ethnic lines, racial lines, socioeconomic lines, political lines? And I know the instinct is to say, well, yeah, of course, I want Jesus to rescue as many people as he possibly can. But I think Acts 13 is saying to us is it's not that easy. It's not. Because when God starts to gather people of all kinds of backgrounds, we start to get uncomfortable. Acts 13 is saying to us, look around our churches. What tends to happen is that everyone who gathers is kind of the same. Are we ready for the mission of God to drive us to a world that is very different than us, to push us to take the gospel out into areas and to people groups that don't look like us, that don't talk like us, and that don't live like us. In fact, think about it this way. Who are the people that you are most uncomfortable around? Who are the people that make you feel uncomfortable? Who are the people that you tend to see as enemies or as them? Are you ready for God to want to do something great in and around them? Are you ready to be part of that? That's the question of Acts 13. And by the way, I should just stop here and say it's possible that you're watching this and you don't necessarily have a hard time with that. Instead, you feel like a them. You feel as though you're watching this online, but you know people who go to the church. And if they knew you were watching this and if they knew you were thinking about Jesus, 
they would never welcome you in. When you think about following Jesus, you feel very much like a them, very much like one of the Gentiles who might cause a religious person to say, if God loves them, if God forgives them, then I don't want to be around it. Well, Acts 13 is a great passage for you because it's showing you that no matter who might protest your inclusion in the promises of God, God doesn't care. The message of Jesus is for you. The promises of God are for you, that God has always desired to rescue people from us and to rescue people for them, from them and turn them into one great people under Jesus. But if you're struggling with the idea that God wants to diversify our church, that God wants to gather people from all different kinds of backgrounds, then I think, lastly, Acts 13 pushes us towards an answer. And what I mean by that is this, the Jewish people who are upset that God would rescue Gentiles, that God would send the Messiah not just for them, but, but also for non-Jewish people, that God doesn't just want to save us, he wants to save them. Of all the Jewish people who would be upset, you would think that the Apostle Paul would be the most upset. After all, he was an ethnically Jewish guy, steeped in Jewish culture, steeped in Jewish religion. He was a guy who had every reason to hate non-Jewish people and to desire them to miss out on what God was doing, except for this. Paul remembers that he once was an enemy of Jesus, that he once was an outsider to what God was doing, that he once was a them. You see, the guy preaching this sermon knows that no matter who you are and no matter what you've done and no matter what your background, God can and will and wants to rescue you in Jesus because he's experienced it. You see, if you're watching this and you're a Christian, the starting point of letting God open your heart towards those who are not like you is to realize that that's exactly what Jesus did for you. Jesus, the Son of God, perfect in every way, the only one whose life was ever fully obedient to the Father. Jesus was the one guy who was God's us. And everyone else who's ever lived was a them. But Jesus wasn't content simply to know God and be in relationship with God without us. But he came on a rescue mission for us. You see, the Jewish people who are upset that God would rescue people not like them, that God would expand and include other people in his mission, forget this. As sinners, we are all outsiders to the family of God. But the question that God is asking us, will you participate in taking my promises to all kinds of people in all kinds of places and including them and inviting them into what I'm doing gives us an answer as to why we would ever do that. And that is, who are we? But people whose lives have been radically changed by being included in the promises of God and the family of God, even though we didn't deserve it. Listen, this season of our lives right now is crazy and it's distressing 
and it makes us all a little uncomfortable. And right now, we're retreating from each other, literally, because we don't want to get sick or to get others sick. But this will lift eventually. And when it does, Acts 13 is a challenge to us. Will we say to God, the gospel is not only for us, it's also for them. So wherever, however, whenever you want to use me, God, to reach whoever you want to include, I'm ready. Acts 13 tells us that the promises of God are for everyone. They're for us, and they're for other people through us as we take the message to them.